Until the Whole World Hears is our podcast of mission stories from across the globe, told by members in WEC UK and Ireland. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I am your host, Martha, and together we'll learn more about what mission can look like. It can be challenging to live for Christ in the day-to-day, but hearing from others can inspire us to persevere exactly where God has placed us. Thank you for joining and I hope you enjoy hearing these conversations. Yeah, Sue had this clinic where uh, she was treating up to 80 people a day uh, in the clinic. Yes, people would bypass the local hospital because the hospital was, was, it was, although it was staffed by doctors, there was no care. People really worked there just for the money. Um, and if the nurses <laughs> had an opportunity to buy anti-snake va- uh, va- va- vaccine from the government at a cheap price, they would buy as much as they could. And then when the stock ran out, then they would sell it to people who needed it at a vastly inflated price. Um, you know, and, and they would make money this way. It was Everything was very corrupt. But people would <laughs> bypass the local hospital and come to sue because they knew that she may not know the answer, but if she didn't, she would look up in her book, which was this wonderful book we had, which said, Where, where there, there is no doctor. <laughs> where there is no doctor. <laughs> and it, it, it was written by doctors for a Bush situation. And, and it just gave the different treatments to different things and helped her to diagnose. And, and the Lord really helped her because she would pray and, and seek the Lord as to what to do and how to respond to different people and treated people as people rather than as just objects. One time um, uh, a man brought his little boy who was only about two and he was very malnourished and he had malaria. He was very, very ill. Uh, I treated him the normal way, you know, malaria, diarrhea, all the things that you would normally do, but he was so ill. And they said they had taken him to several clinics and a hospital in the town and he never got any better. So I prayed for him, I treated him, and it was fairly basic what I did with a lot of people. But this child was so poorly and so unwell, I wasn't at all sure that he was going to make it. So after that, we went down to the capital for a little bit because our children were coming back from boarding school. And that's another story. (laughs) And um, when we came back, I didn't see this boy again or his dad for, for some time. And then one day the dad arrived with his bike and on the back carrier, he had piled up all these lovely yams. That was the main thing that the concombers farmed. And he was bringing it to me for a thank you letter, for a thank you present, to say that this child was now completely well and that all the hospitals and clinics had completely failed. And my very basic treatment plus prayer had made all the difference Mm. and it was it was amazing it's wonderful (laughs) that's beautiful I guess Mm. prayer must have played a huge part then in your work at the clinic see and just be having that sort of holistic um approach I guess to medicine asking the Lord to heal as well as doing everything you can Mm. and and also looking at the root causes uh, they were very keen on injections which I almost never did uh, they or, or tablets as the second thing, but food was unimportant to them. So a lot of the children were malnourished, and the the, uh, the nurses, the, the sisters at the Catholic clinic, shown us that you could make a porridge, two um, two parts, um, some kind of corn, 
uh, and one part peanuts and one part beans. And you make it into a flour and you make a kind of porridge with it. And this would apparently, apparently keep a newborn orphan baby alive, but it certainly was a great weaning mix. And it was mostly at around two, two to five that the children got so malnourished when they stopped breastfeeding them and didn't have nutritious food, didn't know how to give them the right things. And you know, nobody wanted to hear. I kept telling women, nobody wanted to hear. They wanted medicine. And then one woman went away and she did what I told her. And her little girl was very, very skinny, malnourished, very unhealthy. And she did it. She fed her three times a day with this porridge uh, for a month or two. And then the child was a completely different child. She was healthy running around the village. And everyone said, wow, this is amazing. We thought this one was going to die. And then everyone started listening. Mm. So we did a lot in terms of health education. I used to usually on a Sunday afternoon have a, have a health education class with the women. And we talked about basic things like covering up uh, mosquito bites because otherwise the flies would sit on them and they'd get infected. So just the most basic stuff, mm. um, you know, um, how to treat your water and nutrition and what to do for little burns. They cooked on an open fire. So burns were a very big problem, children getting burnt on the fire. Um, so how to treat a burn, just the most basic things, but it made a huge difference to them. Mm. And by that time, they got to know us, they trusted us, we spoke their language, we were one of them, we were white concombers basically, mm. and, and they accepted us and they listened to what we had to say and it was amazing. We were just part of them, we were mm. part of that village, it was just lovely. Wow, <laughs> that is lovely. It's often the basic building blocks of life, isn't it really? Like, I mean, I think it's the same with anyone here too, things like, it makes me think of like with mental health, you know, are, are you sleeping well? Are you eating well? Are you exercising? It's like the first checks that you do before before actually treating something specifically to make sure someone's actually just living in, in the things that God's given us to do already. Yeah, it's true. I mean, you know, it's all very well to go there and to, you know, just to preach. But I think we, we had to be a living sermon. You know, we had to live out uh, and show them and demonstrate. And this is, of course, what Jesus did. You know, he came and he lived among us and he, he walked the walk and talked the talk. He, he, he was the presence of God, you know, among the people. And I think that's what the Lord wants us to be. And particularly in a different culture, so important to, to understand the language, but not just the language, but the culture and to live with them and do the things they do. Um, I think we, uh, I got very close to them, particularly when we were building our house. Uh, and then after building the house, I went on to build a school um, and built a clinic and did all sorts of things. I'm an agricultural engineer, and I felt that that was very, very, a very helpful training and qualification for living in rural Africa uh, with people that had very little, uh, because it really caused me to draw on all sorts of things that would not be, you would sort of pick up in school um, to, to be able to, to, to build properly, to build constructions and, and water tanks and reservoirs and schools and clinics and things like that. So it, it was great. Um, we had a, uh, I made an application that we, 
we felt that the, the, that we needed to improve the school where yeah, church school this the, church, the school church school in in Basa, in the area that we were in the north of Ghana and um, uh, at the mo at the time the school was actually started by Yan Diong who was our four, um, our previous uh, predecessor there and we lived and worked with him for a little bit and then they moved on to another part of, of, of the world um, but uh, he had started the school um, and started with one class and this was at a time when when education in Ghana was completely on the floor uh, teachers, was. teachers were just using the students to go off to their farm and farm for him. You know, they, they weren't, weren't learning, getting, they weren't getting education, they, they weren't, weren't getting, getting they weren't getting paid. Yeah, the teachers weren't getting paid. And and so why should they teach? And the children, the parents wanted the children looking after, thinking that they were learning, but basically all they were doing were going and farming for the teacher. So yeah. set up a a, a, a school. Um, and starting with the, with the primary children and taking a, a guy, a young man from the church who had passed secondary school form four, which is, I suppose, equivalent to the beginning of O-levels, would it be? Maybe but, even, maybe even the end of O-levels, GCSE, something like yeah. that. So anyway, this guy was asked to come and would he be the teacher? Well, he did a great job for the first year. And then the first class became the second class and a new set came in to be form one and what could the one teacher do for the two well he encouraged the people who had learned who had learned in the first year to teach uh you know they were now year two but they became the teachers for year one and he went between the two and made up the difference but it using this principle getting the teachers to getting the students to teach helped them to really assimilate what they were learning and recognizing that they had to teach others well eventually the school grew to six classes and many years later they needed a proper school so i applied to the government to uh, i applied to the british government for a, a a grant um to to build the school and i they gave us twelve thousand pounds to build this school um i worked out calculated that i could i could do it for that uh, and so for six months uh, I built this school. It was 200 feet long. It had seven classrooms and a teacher's room and a storeroom and a library. And a latrine block. And a latrine And clean blocks. drinking water from the roof. And a big water tank inside to hold uh, 10,000 gallons of pure rainwater for children to, to, to use during the rain season. And I got built all this for less than £12,000. And the British High Commission came, uh, the commissioner came to, to see the school. And when he saw it, he could not believe that we'd been able to build the school uh, for, for that amount of money and that it was all completely finished. And um, he was so impressed because he'd just come from another place where he'd given a loan, uh, given an advance to another village uh, in response to their application. And all they had dug was a trench in the ground and put a little bit of cement in it and all the money had gone but the chief had a new car and various people in the in the village had motorbikes and so he could see that all the money had gone on on other things so but working with them was was a great way of getting to know them learning their culture learning their language and in that time we built deep friendships but also they grew spiritually the situation in ghana was that if you provided a school building uh, and 
then the government, by this stage, the government had improved, improved and gone on. We're talking we're over a 10-year period. By the time he built the, the school, which was the last thing that we did, or he did, because I actually left before it was finished. That's when I was ill. Um, during this time, the, the, the government was paying teachers' salaries, and they said, if you, you build a school, you could put your own teachers in as long as they were qualified and they would pay the salaries. You could teach RE and assembly according to your own faith. So it was amazing. It was a wonderful opportunity. Mm. So we had um, Christian teachers in that school paid for by the government and all the children who came, some from church families, but many, many, many from non-church families, non-Christian families, and they all got a, a wonderful um, introduction to Christianity. And uh, after we left Ghana, nine years later, it was the 20th anniversary, I think, of the school. And they invited us back. And we actually did go back for the grand um, opening. It was a sort of celebration of 20 years of this school. Mm, and it was fantastic to see that this school was really doing well. And the most encouraging thing of all was that several of the teachers had actually been in that first class that Enoch started with wow. way back at the beginning. Mm. And they had done their education. They had been to teacher training college and they were now back in the rural area. All qualified. In Ghana, many people who are educated don't want to be in the villages. Life is hard. There isn't electricity. There isn't running water. There's malaria. The schooling is not so good. Um, many people um, would prefer to be in a city once they're educated and qualified. But these people had chosen to come back to their to their roots and they were educating the next generation of their own people. And that was so exciting. That wow. was so good to see. That's and they had actually, yeah. Mm. David had built a primary school and they had built a junior secondary school after we had left and the whole thing was thriving, really thriving. Mm. It's so lovely for you both to see as well that the work can the work continues on and and the, what you've sown there is actually bearing fruit and to have that to see that in your own lifetime I think is, is quite a privilege from the Lord isn't it because so often we don't yeah. see the effect of the work we have what, that we do Certainly. Yeah. yeah the whole thing was a huge privilege uh to be to be there to be amongst the concombers to see all those hundreds thousands of people coming to the Lord having their lives changed uh, it was just the most amazing privilege. Mm. We loved it. You know, um, the Concombas were an extremely open tribe. Um, I remember one time when I was driving uh, through uh, Ghana, I came to this village uh, called Chamba. Uh, and it was, it was about uh, half an hour's drive from our own village. And as I was coming, driving down the middle of the village, a man rushed out from the side of the road and stopped the, lad, stopped the car. Um, and he said to me, he said, please, uh, we need you. Uh, I want to talk to you. So uh, I stopped and came out and he said, I want you, we want you as a village to come here and to teach us the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, I thought to myself, goodness, we, we're already in so many villages and I'm struggling to have, find the time to, to do what I need to do. Uh, and I said, well, uh, 
well, I said, well, look, you know, we're not like the Catholics, you know, we, we won't just come and build you a big church and give you lots of good things, you know, like this. We just don't have that sort of thing. He said, no, 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 no. Look, he said, follow me. And he took me behind his house down the back lane somewhere into a house where he said, look, you see, we've got all the materials. We've got the roofing sheets. We've got the timber. We will build the church. All we want you to do is come here and teach us. And that story could be replicated all over where we went. They were crying out for us to come and to just teach them the word of God. They would do all the work. They would build the church. They would do all the things for us. They just wanted to be taught. And uh, that was the hunger that we saw throughout the tribe. It was, uh, it was really sad, really, that nobody followed us up when we had to leave. Uh, Sue was sick. We'd had malaria. She'd had malaria particularly badly. So um, many times. Almost once a month, she would go down with malaria. Uh, and then perhaps one or two of the children as well. For some reason, it didn't seem to bother me. Um, and, and I didn't get it so much, but, but she did. And eventually we were just on our way to conference one year when uh, she had been so unwell. We called in to see a doctor in Accra and he looked at her and checked her over and he said, I'm sorry, you're going to have to get on the plane tonight and go back to the UK. You cannot stay here any longer. Because my liver basically couldn't cope with all the tablets the prevention ones, the, the, the treatment ones, and all the malaria. And it took me quite a while to get there. She said, you, he said, you are poisoning her. You cannot, she cannot go on taking this medicine. So that was almost an abrupt end oh, to was, our ministry. And that was actually, it was just a month before, or a few weeks before that, that we received the, uh, the approval for the loan to build the secondary. The, the not school. the loan, it was a gift. The gift, yeah. yeah the, yeah. So I had to stay on out there and build the school on my own. Uh, and then eventually I got really sick, too. Uh, but that's another story. <laughs> but, um, you know, living in Ghana was exciting because it pushed the boundaries of our faith. Mm, absolutely. All the time we, we, we were faced with things that we didn't know really the solution to. We had to really cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, what do we do now? You know, we haven't been this way before. This is, this is completely new. What do we do in this situation? How do we respond to this, this problem? And, um, you know, it was, really, it was really wonderful to see the Lord leading us and guiding us and showing us the way through some of the very difficult things we had to face. It's an adventure of faith. And I remember that, you know, when we, when we committed ourselves to mission, we knew, you know, we were we were putting our hand into the hand of God and he was going to lead us to into amazing places. And wherever we went, we would be secure in him because he was leading us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we really experienced that for ourselves and for our children. And our children had the most amazing childhood in Ghana because mm. we were in a rural area. They were out when they weren't doing school, they were out with all their concomber friends playing lighting fires, playing with bows and arrows. My, my youngest, Johnny, was a crack shot. He could <laughs> shoot a bow out of a tree with an arrow <laughs> because he was really a cucumber kid. Yeah. And they were just, um, they had the most amazing time. And they will look back on it now and say, 
that was wonderful. It was mm. summer all year round. <laughs> it was the paradise childhood for, for, yeah. for them, really. And when they came back to England, eventually they didn't find that easy mm. because, you know, the long winters where there's hardly any daylight and you come home from school and it's almost already dark. And when are we meant to play, they'd say, because to them, playing was outside with all their friends. Mm. So it, was, it was a great time. Do you have anything that either of you would like to add in terms of what advice you might give to a young person who's thinking about going into mission uh, overseas, that is? Go for it. It's great. It's really exciting. Uh, I suppose it's not for the faint-hearted. I mean, the Lord said, you know, if any man will come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Um, and that's, that's really true. You know, um, I think one thing I would say about guidance is I remember talking to uh, an older missionary couple who'd been, spent their lives in Peru and they'd come back to our church in, in, in the UK. And I said to this lovely man, Fred, Fred and Ruth Webb, I said, Fred, um, what's your secret about knowing God's will? And he thought for a moment and then he said, peace. He said, it's knowing, having a peace in your heart that you're following the Lord, that the Lord is leading you. And I think that's very true. You know, we, we quote Psalm 23, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. You know, the devil bites at our heels. He's like a dog. He pushes us to make decisions. He pushes us to make decisions for the wrong reasons. Whereas Christ leads us. And we need to be people who are sensitive to what he's saying, not jumping into decisions because we feel we have to do this or it's something that other people are expecting us to do, but that we're being faithful to what the Lord is leading us. He said to his disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We need to be people who are looking to Jesus and listening to him. Um, I, I would agree 100%. And what I would also say is that you need to be sure that it's what God wants for you. Mm. If you are genuinely open and willing, God will show you if that's what his will is. Mm. And however hard the situations are, if you know that, you can cope. Um, you know, we had tough times with the malaria. We had to send our kids to boarding school, which was not what we would have chosen. Um, they thrived. It's very hard for us to say goodbye mm. without them. Um, but, but um, you know, if you give it your all, God will bless you and mm. God will use you. And there's nothing, there's nothing better than being part of what God is doing. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, Sue shared at the beginning about uh, the time when it was confirmed to us about Ghana. You know, we were being, we, it was suggested to us that we go to West Africa and Ghana was one of the countries that was suggested to us. And, and the Lord really confirmed that, as, as she said, in those three ways, which were very, very real. But uh, she did share later that when Daniel was sick, you know, that's when she really, you know, we really cried out to the Lord, Lord, show us. You know, we we know that we're here, not just because it was a good idea, but because you've led us here. And I think 
in times of testing, it's very important to look back to those, mm -hmm. those, those times when you know that God has called you. Now, the Bible says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your mm -hmm. heart. That's Jeremiah 29. And, you know, we need to seek the Lord. If you're, if you're concerned, if you're really seeking the Lord as to where you should be, seek him for a confirmation and be absolutely sure it's not unscriptural it's not you're not testing god you know it's not you know like like the devil tempting jesus you know you're not tempting god to ask him for confirmation that this is god's will and and ask him to show you how he wants to confirm it to you and and, and pray into it and be absolutely sure that the lord is calling you and uh, yeah as i said it's by faith it's by peace Isaiah 55, you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. Mm. He leads us. He leads us with peace. Mm. Amen. Yeah. Thank you very much for sharing. Um, I, I have one question, just this isn't a, this is just off the off the back of my own curiosity, but um would could you talk a bit about the so you were talking a bit there, David, about how uh, communicating the gospel looked quite different because of the cultural differences and how you both had to learn the culture and learn how to do this. And I'm sure, Sue, you also would have had to do this with teaching the woman as well. What were some of the points of connection then between um, the culture that you were speaking into and and the truth of the gospel? And where was the, you know, where would you put the emphasis? What were the things that they connected and related with most when you're telling the kind of arc of the biblical story? Well, it's very interesting you asked that because actually you've reminded me of a very big thing that I haven't shared. Um, and that was that after we saw all these many villages uh, asking or, or, or standing up and, and confirming that they want to follow Jesus, uh, we had all these new converts uh, and we were going back into the villages and teaching them. But it came to the point where what we needed to do was was we, we selected elders in the, in each of the churches or in each of the villages we appoint we could after going backwards and forwards uh for 10 12 15 times into the village before we actually asked them to make that decision we got to know which ones were really keen which ones were really the ones who the lord were were, were singling out to be the future elders of the village and the future pastors and they were the ones who needed the training. So I started, uh, as, as we said before, many of them couldn't read or write. And to send them to the local, to the church Bible school uh, meant leaving their families for three years. And the first thing would be learning to, to read and write and then learning this, that and the other. And, and it was, they didn't have the time. The church was there and it was growing and they needed them now. So we started an oral Bible school where the people where the, these people, we'd call them in on a certain day of the month um, and they would come in for four or five days and we taught them the word of God. Again, going right back to the beginning and, uh, and orally taught them really sort of, uh, sort of uh, spoke out the stories of the Old Testament. But the amazing thing was that as I was doing this, I was recognizing how similar it was a culture of the mm. Old Testament to their own culture. Yeah. And they related to it. And what, what we did was um, uh, the, we, I had 40 or 50 uh, students there in the class 
um, and they would come in once a week and I encouraged them to come with their wives if they wanted to. Whoever wanted to come could come, but they had to pay. And I felt this was really important that we instilled in them right at the beginning that they need to pay and perhaps even members of their church could support them in going, but they didn't have money. What do they do when they don't have cash? So I said, just bring something from your farm, whether it's a yam or a chicken or, or some peanuts or some uh, uh, millet or corn or guinea corn or whatever it is, just bring something. It doesn't matter what it is, there's no set price, but just bring something. And we would put it all together and the women from the local church in Bassa would do all the cooking and prepare the food for everybody. And we added something to it too, but that was enough to keep the Bible school going. But the thing is that they learned the word of God and they learned to love the Lord. And from these oral Bible schools, I said to them, listen, if any of you has any question during the, during the time that we're teaching, just feel free to stop, to interrupt and tell us what your problem is. And it was from that, that so many questions came forward. Let me give you an example. One, one man said that, you know, when I was a child, well, before I was born, my parents couldn't have children. So they went to the fetish and they made a sacrifice and they prayed to the fetish that they would have a child. And I am that child. I'm the fruit of a child that was dedicated to the fetish. I was dedicated to the fetish at birth. And what do I do? How does this, um, how, do, how do we deal with this in the church? And so, um, you know, I would all of a sudden be thrown, whoa, Lord, what do we do here? <laughs> so, you know, but then speak into that, look into scripture and come back with verses and share them, share with them that actually the Lord will cover all of this. And we will pray and break all the powers of, of any kind of spirit that is having any hold over you. And we will set you free in the name of the Lord Jesus, because in the name of Jesus, we have freedom. He came to set the captives free. And uh, it's wonderful to, to just be able to go back to scripture and to help these people through the questions that they themselves would have to face further down the line. It's amazing. What about you, Sue, with the woman and, and teaching them? Uh, at some stage, we came across um, the genealogy, you know, in Matthew 1. And uh, David was, was, you know, we normally sort of almost skip over all those names. The ancestors, you know, they thought that was so important. They loved those chapters. They read them over and over because if you have a father, a grandfather, a great-grandfather, a great-great-great-grandfather, it means you're a real person. It mm. means you're not a fable or a fairy story. You're real. Mm. And I think for a lot of them, that made such a difference that Jesus was a real person with ancestors just like they were. Mm. And I think, I think for some of them who were maybe not quite there yet, that made a huge difference. Yeah. It must have been amazing for you both to experience, I guess, just coming closer to the word of God yourselves through seeing what that, because that is what the genealogies are for. <laughs> that is what Matthew's doing. He's going, Jesus is a, is, is a human as well. And so, but we don't, because we don't appreciate that. It must have just been amazing for you to actually understand God more through that teaching and through seeing how, the, how they were relating with God. Absolutely. You know, um, 
we we went to Ghana thinking we were going to teach them. But actually, we we ended up learning so much more. We read, we grew in that time because, as I said, we were the Lord was causing us to push boundaries. And the Christian life is an adventure. And so often we we just get stuck in a rut. We, we just limit ourselves just to going to church on Sunday and the prayer meeting on Wednesday night and, you know, the Bible study. And we, we, just, we just get in a rut, whereas Christ wants us to launch out into the deep and to trust him and to put ourselves in situations where we don't know answers and seek him for the answers. And that's where, where we grow. And I feel that's so important. It's interesting. It's very, very interesting to hear all these things. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. I've been really encouraged by what you've shared. We hope you enjoyed Till the Whole World Hears. If you found this helpful, please write a review. We'd love to hear from you. If you would like to know more about WEC UK and Ireland, you can visit our website or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Links are in the description. Join us next time to hear more about what living as a missionary is like. Thanks for sharing our podcast and blessings on your week. Goodbye.